This material is for reference and educational purposes only. Simkit, its authors, and associates assume no responsibility for the utilization of any knowledge, materials, or techniques shown or described. Nor do Simkit, its authors, or associates assume any responsibility for patient safety or outcomes. Clinical experience as well as current guidelines should determine the exact procedure and processes in each individual patient. Hello, everybody, and welcome back to the Simkit podcast. I am super, super duper excited to be introducing a guest speaker today in Dylan Warr. Dylan is a third-year resident at my alma mater, Temple University, and has an interest in medical education. Today, Dylan is going to be reviewing the ACORN trial, looking at two very, very commonly prescribed antibiotics and some side effects or consequences for the patient you might not expect. Take it away, Dylan. Jason, thank you so much for having me on SimKit. I am excited to be part of your show, and I'm looking forward to diving into this episode's topic. Let's get this discussion started with a case. So, we have a 45-year-old man with a history of type 2 diabetes, hypertension, COPD, who was brought into the emergency department by his partner because he just hasn't been acting like himself. For the last two days, he has been drowsy, disoriented, and complaining of generalized abdominal discomfort. On your initial set of vitals, the patient is tachycardic to a heart rate of 120, febrile to 102.2 degrees Fahrenheit, with soft blood pressures of 100 over 75. He is oxygenating well in room air. On your evaluation, the patient is ANO times 2 with a non-specific and non-focal physical exam, but without meningismus. You get IV access, start IV fluids, and obtain a rainbow of labs. Patient's laboratory studies are notable for a leukocytosis to 20, a creatinine of 1.4 from an unknown baseline, and a lactate of 4. Your EMR has long since flagged this case for sepsis and prompts the administration of broad-spectrum antibiotics. You order vancomycin for MRSA coverage and then subsequently order your gram-negative agent. You pause and you consider whether or not you want to order piperacillin, tazobactam, or cefepime. Now, although this case is fabricated, it's likely a patient that the ED clinician sees almost on a near daily basis, right? It's that undifferentiated, sick patient with presumed sepsis of, at this point, unknown etiology. Now, this case, although it's fabricated, is a great way that we can frame today's topic. Today, we are going to talk about one of the favorite medications of the ED clinician, piperacillin, Tazobactam, i.e. Zosin, i.e. Piptazo. Specifically, we are going to talk about how Piptazo stacks up the cefepime when it comes to the risk of acute kidney injury or neurologic dysfunction when administered to hospitalized adults for the empiric treatment of infection. The basis of our discussion is a study published in JAMA in October 2023 by Kian et al. titled Cefepime versus Piperacillin, Tazobactam in Adults Hospitalized with Acute Infection. This study is aptly named the Effective Antibiotic Choice on Renal Outcomes, or using its clever acronym, the ACORN Randomized Clinical Trial. Alright, so let's lay some groundwork. As we know, acutely ill adults presenting to the hospital with suspected infection frequently receive empiric antibiotics, and many of these undifferentiated patients receive broad-spectrum antibiotics, such as cefepime or piptazo, as part of their antibiotic regimen. Cefepime and piptazo have similar efficacy against gram-negative bacteria, particularly our favorite bacterial target, Pseudomonas. Thus, our choice to use one of these over the other likely depends on differences in their adverse effect profiles. Although lesser known, there have been observational studies that have reported an association between cefepime and neurotoxicity, which can range from agitation all the way to coma. Much more widely circulated among providers is the reported association between piptazo and acute kidney injury, 
particularly with the concurrent receipt of vancomycin. There is even a USA Food and Drug Administration warning that co-administration of piptazo with vancomycin may increase the incidence of AKI. It is important to note that these previous studies have focused on serum creatinine level as the measure of AKI, rather than, you know, more patient-centered outcomes such as new dialysis or mortality. More recently, there have been observational studies noting that the creatinine elevation with Sosin is a form of pseudo-AKI, i.e. the creatinine is briefly elevated due to inhibition of tubular secretion of creatinine, without elevation of what people consider to be maybe more important or specific kidney injury markers such as cystatin C. These same studies demonstrated that this transient creatinine elevation was also not associated with CKD long-term or need for hemodialysis. To date, before this trial, there were no RCTs that have compared cefepime versus piptazo. Thus, the objective of the study was to determine whether the choice between cefepime and piptazo affects the risks of acute kidney injury or neurologic dysfunction in patients treated empirically for acute infection with one of these antibiotics. With that primer, let's dive in. So design-wise, this is a single-center, pragmatic, investigator-initiated, open-label, parallel-group, randomized trial comparing the safety of cefepime and piperacillin tazobactan in adult patients with suspected infection in the emergency department or medical intensive care unit. Patients were included in this trial if they were adults greater than 18 years of age in the ED or medical ICU for whom a clinician initiated an order for cefepime or piptazo within 12 hours of presentation to the hospital. Patients were excluded if they had an allergy to cephalosporins or penicillins, had received more than one dose of an antipsychotic cephalosporin or penicillin within the previous seven days, they were incarcerated, or, and this is like one of those notable ors, like if the treating clinician determined that one of the two drugs represented a better treatment option for that patient. Now, an EMR tool subsequently screened all patients for eligibility and an automated alert within the EMR prompted doctors to consider enrolling the patient in this trial. Basically, after the doctor ordered either cefepime or piptazo, the EMR was programmed to automatically screen the patient for exclusion criteria. If none were found, the antibiotic order triggered a prompt for the doctor to consider enrolling the patient in the trial. That is one heck of a BPA. Now, informed consent was also waived as the study was deemed minimal risk, both antibiotics are considered standard of care, and this was considered an emergency intervention, given these patients were acutely ill and hospitalized. Patients were then assigned to simple randomization without stratification in a one-to-one -one ratio to receive cefepime or piptazo. Group assignment was concealed until enrollment. The dose and frequency of antibiotic was determined by institutional protocols. So for cefepime, the standard administration was 2 gram IV push over 5 minutes every 8 hours. Now for Zosin, it was 3.375 gram bolus over 30 minutes for the initial administration subsequently followed by an extended infusion of 3.375 grams every eight hours. And that was infused over four hours for subsequent doses. The duration of any pseudomonal treatment was determined by the treating clinician. The clinicians also were free to administer non-pseudomonal antibiotics such as vancomycin or metronidazole based on their own clinical judgment. If treating clinicians tried to change or discontinue the assigned antibiotic in the seven days following enrollment, the EMR automatically reminded them of the ongoing trial. Like, hello, we have a trial going on. And if that wasn't enough, it then recorded the reason for cessation or the change. 
So as you can see, they really harnessed the EMR to get this trail done. Kudos to them. So let's talk about outcomes. So the primary outcome was the highest stage of AKI or death arising between randomization and day 14, measured on a five level ordinal scale. At one end, those who did not experience new or worsening AKI were assigned a value of zero. And then all the way on the other end of the spectrum, if you died, you got a value of four. Those with really bad AKIs or needing hemodialysis were assigned a value of three. And then, you know, lesser AKIs had, you know, values of one or two. Now, baseline creatinine levels were taken during the year before hospitalization if possible. If not, baseline was the lowest level since trial enrollment. The trial also had several other secondary outcomes. Two secondary outcomes were pre-specified. First, the proportion of patients who experienced a major adverse kidney event at day 14 or at hospital discharge, whichever occurred first, which was a composite of death, receipt of new hemodialysis, or persistent kidney dysfunction, defined by the final inpatient creatinine being greater than two times the baseline level. The other secondary outcome was the number of days alive and free of delirium and coma within 14 days, which was the number of calendar days on which the patient was alive and without a positive CAM-ICU or RAS score of minus four to minus five at time of hospital discharge. Note, this is important for later discussion as the effect of cefepim on the development of neurologic dysfunction, which is one of the things they wanted to look at in this study for comparative safety was a secondary outcome. All right, quick note of some stats. After doing some accounting for the possible effect of concurrent vancomycin administration, they predicted that enrolling 2,500 patients would provide 92% power for detecting an odds ratio of 0.75 in the primary analysis, or an absolute between-group difference of 5% in patients who experienced AKI of any stage or death. Data were analyzed by intention-to-treat analysis, both using unadjusted and adjusted models. They also had several other pre-specified sensitivity analyses and pre-specified analyses on the effects of baseline patient variables. So we've talked about methods, we've talked about outcomes, so let's cover results. What did they find in this study? Among 3,806 patients who met inclusion criteria, 30.8% were excluded. Of the patients enrolled, 95% were included in the primary analysis after excluding those who never received the study drug after enrollment. Thus, 2,511 patients were included in the primary analysis, meeting their pre-specified 92% power threshold, which was 2,500 patients. The median age was 58, roughly 57% male, and 77% non-Hispanic white. 94.7% of patients were enrolled in the ED, the median time between presentation in the hospital and enrollment was 1.2 hours. 54% had sepsis at enrollment, while the most common sources of infection being intra-abdominal and pulmonary. The median SOFA score was 2. 48.3% of patients were assigned to the cefepine group and 51.7% to the Piptasa group. Other baseline patient characteristics, including initial AKI stages, creatinine, and RAS, were well-balanced. In regard to antibiotic therapy, in the 14 days after enrollment, 95% in the cefepime group received at least one dose of cefepime, and 98.4% in the Piptasa group received at least one dose of Piptasa. Patients in each group were treated for a meeting of three days. There was equivalent but some level of crossover with about 18% in each group receiving at least one dose of the other antibiotic. Reflecting common ED practice, about 77% of patients in each group were receiving IV vancomycin at the time of enrollment, with a median duration of vancomycin treatment 
of two days. All right, where's the money here? So primary outcome wise, the highest stage of AKI or death by day 14 did not significantly differ between cefepime and piptazo. Odds ratio 0.95 with a 95% confidence interval ranging from 0.80 to 1.13. So crossing zero, insignificant. Notably, 75% in the cefepime group and 73% in the piptazo group did not experience AKI of any stage or death by day 14. These results were similar in the adjusted analysis and in all pre-specified analyses, including the intention to treat population. In regards to the secondary outcomes, there was no significant difference between groups experiencing a major adverse kidney event at day 14, 10.2% in the cefepime group, 8.8% in the piptazo group, now, to sort of highlight and comment on a possibly more patient-centered outcome within this composite outcome, by day 14, 3.3% in the cefepime group initiated hemodialysis, while 2.3% of the patients did in the piptazo group. Take that for what you will. It's a secondary outcome. Now, it's not all about the kidney. They were also interested in neurologic dysfunction given the prior observational data concerning cefepime. They found that patients in the cefepime group experienced significantly fewer days alive and free of delirium and coma within 14 days compared with patients in the piptazo group. That's 11.9 days with cefepime versus 12.2 days with piptazo. This is an absolute difference of 0.3 days. They also found a significant difference between the cefepime group and the piptazo group when it came to coma or delirium. 20.8% of the cefepime group experienced coma or delirium between enrollment and day 14, compared with 17.3% in the piptazo group, an absolute difference of 3.4% favoring piptazo. All right, I hope everyone is still with me. Now that we've covered the meaty details, let's talk a bit more about the study and what it can mean to clinical practice. Let's start by just acknowledging that this was an excellently designed clinical trial. There was an important clinical question with Chuacopoise, cefepime or piptazo, which is better? They used primary and secondary endpoints that people care about, particularly how the choice between antibiotics affects the risks of acute kidney injury or neurologic dysfunction. They had simple inclusion and exclusion criteria. Basically, was this an adult patient in the ED or ICU who is sick and a clinician plans to start one of these antibiotics? And I would say most notably here, they also had an amazing method of enrolling patients. They levied their EMR and everyone's favorite BPA notifications. As a result, they were able to enroll over 2,600 patients at a single center in only one year. Congrats to them. If you are thinking about how to do clinical research moving forward, put this in your toolbox. Now, this study, you know, had a bunch of words we love to hear when talking about evidence-based medicine. It was a randomized controlled trial with strong internal validity. It had effective randomization, it had well-balanced baseline characteristics, and the majority received intervention as randomized. It also met its sample size for 92% power. And it conducted pre-specified sensitivity analyses and analyzed both adjusted and unadjusted data by intention to treat. Now that I've like done like talking about all the good things about the study, right? Like the study isn't without its limitations. Obviously, it was a single academic center, which limits generalizability. Approximately 20% of patients receive the alternative antibiotic, and you know that could bias towards the null, though you can make an argument that the exposure was similar in both groups. The median duration of antibiotic exposure was short, about three days. Now, this 
does reflect common practice at hospitals when it comes to many undifferentiated ED patients, right? Patient gets started on antibiotics, they get narrowed, or have antibiotics eventually discontinued once cultures result several days later. But it does kind of make it challenging when you think about adverse effects, right? Because it's a short course, and we can't really extrapolate on prolonged courses of cefepime or piptazo. And then, you know, only about 50% of patients were found to have sepsis on a retrospective assessment by the evaluators, and many were not that sick based on SOFA scores at time of enrollment, like a median SOFA score of about two in each group. The dosing regimen may not reflect dosing in other parts of the country. For example, at my institution, the initial dose of Piptazo is 4.5 grams. And rapid dose IV push cefepime, as performed in this study, in some other studies, has been associated with enhanced toxic effects, which you have to kind of think about when you're thinking about cefepime and neurologic dysfunction. The primary outcome, AKI stage, is not exactly a patient-centered outcome, right? In evidence-based medicine, we often talk about, is this a patient-centered outcome? Is it something that matters to patients? And AKI stage is not that. However, they did include hemodialysis and death as part of their ordinal scale and as part of the composite secondary outcome. In addition, given that the clinical conundrum for physicians is concern about piptazo, plus or minus bank, and renal impairment, this AKI stage does have some clinical decision-making relevance. Maybe it's a bit of a stretch, but if anything, the data lends further support to the notion that even in those patients with a transient rise in creatinine, there is no meaningful quote-unquote, patient-centered bad outcome for the use of Piptazo. Although they had a large sample size for a single-center study, you also, once again, have to be careful with secondary outcome measurements, even with significance, such as the higher rates of neurologic dysfunction seen in the cefepime group in the study. Now, I know this has been a big list, but really the biggest limitation is the unblinded nature of this study. While it may not significantly impact objective data like creatinine measurements, it definitely can introduce bias into the assessment of neurologic dysfunction. Clinicians may have been more likely, for example, to make the diagnosis of encephalopathy with cefepime using the CAM-ICU or RAS measurements, especially since these are kind of subjective in nature themselves. So you have a subjective assessment with people who are like, mm, you're on cefepime, are you going to have neurologic dysfunction? Kind of makes it hard. Given that the secondary outcome was only just shy of insignificant, right, you really have to caution about like how to apply these data to clinical practice. And anyway, right, is the between group difference of 0.3 days alive and free of delirium and coma, like over a 14 day period, like clinically significant in itself? Probably not. But it's just something to kind of think about as we highlight maybe the differences between these two medications. We've gone through all of the stuff, right? We've talked about the methods, the outcomes, the results. We've given a kind of a strengths and weaknesses, limitations discussion here. So what did the authors finally conclude? So they concluded, quote, among hospitalized adults in this randomized clinical trial, treatment with piperacillin tazobactam did not increase the incidence of AKI or death. Treatment with cefepime resulted in more neurologic dysfunction. Now, what about our conclusions? or my conclusion, take it as you may. Ultimately, despite these limitations mentioned above, these authors demonstrate that piperacillin tazobactam does not increase the risk of AKI compared with cefepime. At least based on the study and short-term exposure, we can put to bed this piptazo, vancomycin, nephrotoxicity concept that has plagued ED positions, especially with the supporting evidence from previous observational studies showing the pseudo-AKI nature of the vancomycin-zosin combination. 
While we can't make a strong case for avoiding cefepime because of the potential to induce neurologic dysfunction based on the study, this study is a good reminder to be aware of this possible adverse effect and keep it under differential for causes of ICU delirium. So ultimately, in my practice, unless there's a specific clinical indication to use cefepime, I will continue to use Piptazo first for undifferentiated patients with sepsis or possible sepsis. An argument for a later date, right, and this is next something we're not going to go into today, is whether or not we actually need anti-pseudomonal coverage for community-acquired infections or sepsis in the first place. And, you know, sneak peek, that's probably no. But that's for a different conversation. All right, Dylan, thank you so much for that review of the ACORN trial and looking at these two very commonly prescribed antibiotics in cefepime and piptazo, looking at effects and adverse effects for our patients, certainly going to make me think more about which I reach for in my septic patient. And please do remember that SimKit is always there for you for your high acuity, low occurrence, or HALO procedures, bringing simulation training to you, taking away all the barriers to maintain your skills so you're ready to take care of that next critically ill patient. Check out the link at the bottom for more.